Ladies and gentlemen, this morning we are very glad you're here with us. We are going to share with you some important information from the book called Studies in Christian Education, written by the author E.A. Sutherland. Um, the title of this uh, chapter is uh, Beginning of the Educational History in the United States of America. It starts like this, that church triumph, which breaks the yoke of worldly education and which develops and practices the principle of Christian education. Now has never before, we need to understand the true science of education. If we fail to understand this, we shall never have a place in the kingdom of God. The science of true education is the truth. The third angel's message is truth. It is taken for granted that all Seventh-day Adventists believe that Christian education and the child and the third angel's message are the same truth. The two are as inseparable as are a tree's root and its trunk and branches. The object of these studies is to give a better understanding of the reason for the decline and moral fall of the Protestant denomination at the time of the Midnight Cry in 1844 and to help us as Seventh-day Adventists to avoid their mistakes as we approach the loud cry soon due to the world. A brief survey of the history of the Protestant denominations shows that their spiritual downfall in 1844 was the result of their failure to understand the true science of education. Their failure to understand and to practice Christian education unfitted them to proclaim to the world the message of Christ's second coming. The Seventh-day Adventist denomination was then called into existence to take up the work which the popular churches had failed to train their missionaries to do. The Protestant denominations could not give the third angel's message, a reform movement, which is a warning against the beast in his image, because they were still clinging to those doctrines and those principles of education which themselves form the beast and his image. It is important that young Seventh-day Adventists study seriously the causes of the spiritual decline of these churches in 1844, lest we repeat their history and be cast aside the Spirit of God and thus lose our place in the kingdom. If Seventh-day Adventists succeed where they fail, we must have a system of education rich which repudiates those principles which in themselves develop the beast and his image. Now, 
All, the, all these things happen unto them for ensembles, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Protestantism born in the 16th century was about to lose its light, its light in Europe. God then prepared a new land. The future United States has a cradle for the protection and development of those principles. And from this country is to go forth the final worldwide message that heralds the Savior's return. It was a desire for liberty of conscience that inspired the pilgrims to brave the perils of the long journey across the sea to endure the hardship and dangers of the wilderness and, with God's blessings, to lay on the shores of America the foundation of a mighty nation. The Bible was held as the foundation of faith and source of wisdom and the charter of liberty. Its principles were diligently taught in the home, in the school, and in the church. And its fruits were manifest in truth, intelligence, purity, and temperance. It was demonstrated that the principles of the Bible are the surest safeguards to national greatness. These reformers on reaching America renounced to papal doctrines in church and state, but they retain the papal system of education. While the reformers rejected the creed of Rome, they were not entirely free from her spirit of intolerance. The English reformers, while renouncing, renouncing the doctrine of Romanism, had retained many of its form. Some looked upon as badges of the slavery from which they had been delivered and to which they had no disposition to return. Many earnestly desired to return to the purity and simplicity which characterized the primitive church. England had ceased forever to be a habitable spot. Some at last determined to seek refuge in Holland. Difficulties, losers, and imprisonment were encountered. In their flight, they had left their houses, their goods, their means of livelihoods. They cheerfully accepted the situation and lost no time in idleness of ripening. They knew they were pilgrims. In the midst of exile and hardship, their love and faith waxed strong. They trusted the Lord's promises and it did not fail them in the time of need. And when God's hand seemed pointing them across the sea to a land where they might found for themselves a state and leave to their children the precious heritage of religious liberty, they went forward without shrinking in the path of providence.
the Puritans had joined themselves together by Absalom Covenant has the Lord's free people to walk in all his ways, made known or to be made known to them. He was the true spirit of reform, the vital principle of Protestantism. The educational system in, of the church, which had driven them from their native home, was one of the most serious errors from which the Puritan failed to break away. The system of education with papal in spirit was to a certain extent Protestant in reform, in form. The historian writes of the school of the Puritan in the New World that their courses were fitted to the time section curriculum of the college. They taught much Latin and Greek, an extended course in mathematics, and were strong generally on the side of the humanities. This was a modeling after Rugby, Ethan, and other noted English schools. Again, we read, the roots of this system were deep in the great ecclesiastical system. From his early training, Dunster, one of the first president of Harvard, patterned the Harvard University course largely after that of the English universities. They so faithfully patterned after the English model, Cambridge University, that they were called by that name and that historian wrote of Harvard. In several instances, youth in the parents' country were sent to the American Cambridge for a finishing education. Boone, speaking of the courses of study of William and Mary prior to the Revolution, says, All were of English pattern, of Yale. We all know that those colleges are Jesuits' colleges. Of Yale started later, it is said, the regulation for the most part were those at Harvard, as also the course of study, the younger pattern after the older. It is very natural that Yale should be established after the English papal system because the founder, Elihu Yale, had spent 20 years in the English schools. 20 years he spent in the schools and in special study. Seventh-day Adventists should not let this fact escape their attention. The three leading schools of the colony were established by men who had fled from the papal doctrines of the old world. But these educators, because of their training in these papal schools, and their ignorance of the relation between education and religion unwittingly patterned their institutions after the educational system of the church from which they had redrawn. It is surprising that these English reformers, after sacrificing as they did for a worthy cause, 
should yet allow a system of education so unfitted to all their purposes to be in reality the nurse of their children from whose bosom these children drew their nourishment. They did not realize that the character and Christian experience of these children depended upon the nature of the food received. Had they grasped the relation of the education of the child to the experience of the same individual in the church, they would not have borrowed this papal system of education, but would have cast it out bodily as too dangerous for tolerance within the limits of Protestantism. Some facts from educational history will make clear the statement that the system of education in Oxford, Cambridge, Eton, and Rugby was papal. And the New English, England reformers patterning their schools after these models were planting the papal system of education in America. Laurie says, Oxford and Cambridge modeled themselves largely after Paris. A large number of masters and their pupils left Paris, thus the English portion of Paris. The university went to Oxford and Cambridge. The relation of the University of Paris, the mother of Cambridge and Oxford, to the papacy is thus expressed. It was because it was the center of theological learning that it received so many privileges from the Pope and was kept in close relation to the papal see. Luther and Melanchthon, the great 16th century reformers, understood clearly that it was mispossible to have a permanent religious reform without Christian education. So they not only gave attention to the doctrines of the papacy, but also developed a strong system of Christian, Christian schools. Melanchthon said, to neglect the young in our schools is just like taking the spring out of the year. They indeed take away the spring from the year, who permits the school to decline because religion cannot be maintained without them. Melanchthon steadily directed his efforts to the advancement of education in the building up of Christian schools. In the spring of 1520th, with Luther's help, he reorganized the schools of Elsenben and Medgeberg, he declared the cause of true education is the cause of God. In 1528, Melanchthon drew up the Saxony school plan, which served as the basis of organization for many schools throughout Germany. This plan dealt with the question of a multiplicity of studies that were not only unfruitful, but even hurtful. The teacher should not burden the children with too many books. These reformers realized that the strength, the strength of the papal church lay in its educational system 
that they struck a crushing blow at the system and wounding it brought the papal church to her knees. The reformers established a system of Christian school that made, that made Protestants of the children. This wonderful revolution in education and religion was accomplished in one generation, in the brief space of one man's life. To give an idea of the power in that great Christian educational movement, the historian speaking of several European countries says, the nobility, nobility of that country studied in Wittenberg, all the colleges in the land were filled with Protestant. Not more than 30th part of the population remained Catholic. They withheld their children too from the Catholic schools. The inhabitants of many did not hesitate to send their children to Protestant schools. The Protestant nation extended their vivifying energies to the most remote of most forgotten corners of Europe. What an immense domain had they conquered within the space of 40 years. 20 years had elapsed in Venia since a single student of the university had taken priest orders. About this period, the teachers in Germany were all, almost without exception, Protestants. The whole body of the rising generation sat at their feet and imbibed a hatred of the Pope with the first rudiment of learning. After the death of Luther and Melanchthon, the theologian into whose hand the work of the Reformation fell, instead of multiplying Christian schools, became absorbed in the mere technicality of theology. And, and passed by the greatest work of the age. They soldiers their birthright, they sold their birthright for a mess of pottage. When the successors of Luther and Melanchthon failed to continue that constructive work, which centered largely in the education of the youth, who were to be the future missionaries and pillars of the church, internal dissensions arose. Their time was spent very largely in criticism, the view of some of their co-laborers who differed with them in some unimportant points of theology. Thus they became destructive instead of constructive. They paid much attention to doctrines and spent the most of their energy in preserving orthodoxy. They crystallized their doctrine into a creed. They ceased to develop and lost the spirit of Christian education, which was the oil for their lamp. Protestantism degenerated into dead orthodoxy and they broke up into opposing fraction. The Protestant church, thus weakened, could not resist the great power of 
of rejuvenated papal education. The success of the reformers had been due to their control of the youth of the young people through their educational system. The papal schools were almost forsaken during the activity of Luther, Luther and Melanchthon. But when these reformers died and their successors became more interested, interested in abstract theology than in Christian education and spent their time, energy and money of the church in preaching and writing on abstract theology, the papal school system recovering itself, rose to a life and dead struggle with Protestant church. The papacy realized that the existence of the papal church itself depends upon a victory over Protestant schools. We are surprised at the skills and tact the papal educators use in their attack and the rapidity with which they gain the victory. This experience should be an object lesson for forever to Seventh-day Adventists and to the world. A Christian school animated by the papal spirit, the eyes of the successors of Luther and Melanchthon were blinded. They did not understand the true science of education they did not see its importance and grasp the dependence of character upon education. The true object of education is to restore the image of God in the soul. Satan took advantage of this blindness to cause some of their own educators, like wolves in sheep's clothing, to prey onto, on the lambs. Chief among these was John Stern, who by these blind reformers was supposed to be a good Protestant. Stern introduced practically the entire papal system of education into the Protestant schools of Strasbourg. And because he pretended to be a Protestant, the successors of Luther looked with favor upon his whole education scheme. He was regarded by the so-called reformers as the greatest education of, of his time. And his school became so popular among Protestants that it was taken as their model for the Protestant schools of Germany. And its influence extended to England, England and thence to America. No one who is acquainted with the education given at our principal classical school, Ethan, Winchester, and Westminster, 40 years ago can fail to see that their curriculum was formed in a great degree on Sturm's model. The historian says that it was Sturm's ambition to reproduce Greece and Rome in the midst of modern Christian civilization. This educational wolf dressed in Christians, in Christians fleece made great inroads on the lambs of the flock. 
and made possible of papal victory. Most dangerous of all enemy in the church is a school of its own. Christian in profession with teachers and managers who are only half converted. Who are accustomed to popular methods who concede some things and make half reform preferring to work according to their own ideas who step by step advance toward worldly education leading the innocent lambs with them in the day of judgment it will be easier for that for that man who has been called and an avowed enemy to a reform movement that for that one who professed to be a shepherd but who has been a wolf in sheep's clothing who deserved the lamb who deceives who deceives the lambs until they are unable to save themselves it is the devil's master stroke to overthrow of god's work in the world and there is no influence harder to counteract no other form of evil is so strongly denounced i know why works that thou art neither cold or hot i would that thou wert cold or hot so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold or hot i will spew thee out of my mouth said the lord some stern school stood as halfway marked between the christian schools of luther and melanchthon and the papal schools round about him it offered a mixture of medieval classical literature with a thin slice of scripture sandwiched in for effect and flavored with the doctrine of the church its course of study was impractical its method of instruction mechanical memory work was exalted its government was arbitrary and empirical a dead knowledge of words took the place of a living knowledge of things the student were obliged to learn but they were not educated to see and hear to think and prove and were not led to a true independence and personal perfection teachers found their function in teaching the prescribed texts not in harmoniously developing the youth the young human being according to the laws of nature macally speaking of the system of education adds they promised what was impracticable they despised they despised what was practicable they filled the world with long words and long beards and they left it as ignorant and as wicked as they found it jesuit schools the study should make it clear that the protestant teachers weakened and unfitted the protestant denomination for the attack made by the papacy through 
the counter system of education introduced by Loyola, founder of the order of Jesuit. Before this Catholic Church realized its helplessness to withstand the great movement of Protestantism, inaugurated by thousands of missionaries trained in the Christian school of Luther and Melanchthon. Nothing the return of the Protestant Church to dead orthodoxy under the inefficient leadership of Luther's successors. The papacy recognized the vulnerable point in Protestantism. The order of Jesuits found its special mission in combating the Reformation as the most effective means of arresting the progress of Protestantism. It aimed at controlling education. It developed an immense educational activity in Protestant countries and earned for its schools a great reputation. More than any other agency, it stayed the progress of the Reformation, of the Reformation, and it even succeeded in winning back territory already conquered by Protestantism. It worked chiefly through its schools, of which it established and controlled large numbers. Every member of the order became a competent and practical teacher. The following methods of teaching are characteristic of Jesuit schools. The memory was the memory was cultivated as a means of keeping down free activities of thought and clearness of judgment. In the place of self government, their method of discipline was a system of mutual distrust, espionage, and informing. Implicit obedience re relieved the student from all responsibilities as the moral justification of their deeds. The Jesuits made much of emulation. He who knows how to excite emulation was found the most powerful auxiliary in his teaching. Nothing will be more honorable than to outstrip a fellow student and nothing more dishonorable than to be outstriped. Prizes will be distributed to the best student with greater solemnity. It sought shall result with which to dazzle the world. A well-rounded development was nothing. The Jesuits did not aim at developing all the faculties of their students, but merely the receptive and reproductive faculties. When a student could make a brilliant display from the resources of a well-stored memory, he had reached the highest point to which the Jesuit sought to lead him. Originality and independence of mind, love of truth for its own sake, the power of reflecting and forming correct judgment were not merely neglected. They were suppressed 
in the Jesuit system. The Jesuit system of education was remarkably successful. And for a century, nearly all foremost men of Christendom came from Jesuit school. Success of Jesuit schools. Concerning the success of the Jesuit educational system in overcoming the careless and indifferent Protestants, we read they carried their point. They shadowed the Protestant schools and, like a parasite, suck from them their life. Their labor were above all devoted to the universities. Protestants called back their children from distant schools and put them under the care of the Jesuits. The Jesuits occupied the professors' chairs. They conquered the German of their own soil. On their own soil. And their very home. And wrested from them a part of their native land. This conquest rapidly went through nearly all the European countries. They conquered England by talking English youth to Rome and educating them in Jesuit schools and sending them back as missionaries and teachers to their native land and thus they were established in the schools of England. The Jesuit overran the New World also, becoming thoroughly established and have been employing their characteristic methods here ever since. Here, as elsewhere, their only purpose is to obtain the sole direction of education so that by getting the young into their hands, they can fashion them after their own pattern. We stay here at the page 17. This is how the book Studies in Christian Education describe the overthrow of Protestantism throughout the old world as in the new world, meaning the United States of America. Ladies and gentlemen, this morning we are very glad you're here with us. We are going to share with you some important information from the book called Studies in Christian Education written by the author E.A. Sutherland. Um, the title of this uh, chapter is uh, Beginning of the Educational History in the United States of America. It starts like this. That church triumph which breaks the yoke of worldly education and which develops and practices the principle of Christian education. Now has never before, 
we need to understand the true science of education. If we fail to understand this, we shall never have a place in the kingdom of God. The science of true education is the truth. The third angel's message is truth. It is taken for granted that all Seventh-day Adventists believe that Christian education and the child and the third angel's message are the same truth. The two are as inseparable as are a tree's root and its trunk and branches. The object of these studies is to give a better understanding of the reason for the decline and moral fall of the Protestant denomination at the time of the Midnight Cry in 1844. And to help us as Seventh-day Adventists to avoid their mistakes as we approach the loud cry soon due to the world. A brief survey of the history of the Protestant denominations shows that their spiritual downfall in 1844 was the result of their failure to understand the true science of education. Their failure to understand and to practice Christian education unfitted them to proclaim to the world the message of Christ, second coming. The Seventh-day Adventist denomination was then called into existence to take up the work which the popular churches had failed to train their missionaries to do. The Protestant denominations could not give the third angel's message, a reform movement, which is a warning against the beast in his image, because they were still clinging to those doctrines and those principles of education which themselves form the beast and his image. It is important that young Seventh-day Adventists study seriously the causes of the spiritual decline of these churches in 1844, lest we repeat their history and be cast aside the Spirit of God and thus lose our place in the kingdom. If Seventh-day Adventists succeed where they fail, we must have a system of education rich which repudiates those principles which in themselves develop the beast and his image. Now, all, the, all these things happen unto them for ensembles, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Protestantism born in the 16th century was about to lose its like its light in Europe. God then prepared a new land. The future United States has a cradle for the protection and development of those principles. And from this country is to go forth the final worldwide message that heralds the Savior's return. It was a desire for liberty of conscience that inspired the pilgrims to brave the perils of the long journey across the sea, to endure 
the hardship and dangers of the wilderness and with God's blessings to lay on the shores of America the foundation of a mighty nation. The Bible was held as the foundation of faith and source of wisdom and the charter of liberty. Its principles were diligently taught in the home, in the school, and in the church. And its fruits were manifest in truth, intelligence, purity, and temperance. It was demonstrated that the principles of the Bible are the surest safeguards to national greatness. These reformers on reaching America renounced to papal doctrines in church and state, but they retain the papal system of education. While the reformers rejected the creed of Rome, they were not entirely free from her spirit of intolerance. The English reformers, while renouncing, renouncing the doctrine of Romanism, had retained many of its form. Some looked upon as badges of the slavery from which they had been delivered and to which they had no disposition to return. Many earnestly desired to return to the purity and simplicity which characterized the primitive church. England had ceased forever to be a habitable spot. Some at last determined to seek refuge in Holland. Difficulties, losers, and imprisonment were encountered. In their flight, they had left their houses, their goods, their means of livelihoods. They cheerfully accepted the situation and lost no time in idleness of ripening. They knew they were pilgrims. In the midst of exile and hardship, their love and faith waxed strong. They trusted the Lord's promises and it did not fail them in the time of need. And when God's hand seemed pointing them across the sea to a land where they might found for themselves a state and leave to their children the precious heritage of religious liberty, they went forward without shrinking in the path of providence. The Puritans had joined themselves together by Absalom Covenant has the Lord's free people to walk in all his ways, made known or to be made known to them. He was the true spirit of reform, the vital principle of Protestantism. The educational system in, of the church, which had driven them from their native home, was one of the most serious errors from which the Puritan failed to break away. This system of education with papal in spirit was to a certain extent Protestant in reform, in form. The historian writes of the school 
of the Puritan in the New World that their courses were fitted to the time section curriculum of the college. They taught much Latin and Greek and extended course in mathematics and were strong generally on the side of the humanities. This was a modeling after Rugby, Ethan, and other noted English schools. Again, we read, the roots of this system were deep in the great ecclesiastical system. From his early training, Dunster, one of the first president of Harvard, patterned the Harvard University course largely after that of the English universities. They so faithfully patterned after the English model, Cambridge University, that they were called by that name and that historian wrote of Harvard in several instances, youth in the parents' country were sent to the American Cambridge for a finishing education. Boone, speaking of the courses of study of William and Mary Pryor to the revolution, says, all were of English pattern, of Yale. We all know that those colleges are Jesuits' colleges. Of Yale started later, it is said, the regulation for the most part were those at Harvard, as also the course of study, the younger pattern after the older. It is very natural that Yale should be established after the English papal system because the founder, Elihu Yale, had spent 20 years in the English schools. 20 years he spent in the schools and in special study. Seventh-day Adventists should not let this fact escape their attention. The three leading schools of the colony were established by men who had fled from the papal doctrines of the old world. But these educators, because of their training in these papal schools and their ignorance of the relation between education and religion, unwittingly pattern their institutions after the educational system of the church from which they had redrawn. It is surprising that these English reformers, after sacrificing as they did for a worthy cause, should yet allow a system of education so unfitted to all their purposes to be in reality the nurse of their children, from whose bosom these children drew their nourishment. They did not realize that the character and Christian experience of these children depended upon the nature of the food received. Had they grasped the relation of the education of the child to the experience of the same individual in the church, they would not have borrowed this papal system of education, but would have cast it out bodily as too dangerous for tolerance within the limits of Protestantism. Some facts from educational history will make clear the statement that the system of education in Axford, 
Cambridge, Eton, and Rugby was papal. And the New English, Engl England reformers, patterning their schools after these models, were planting the papal system of education in America. Laurie says, Oxford and Cambridge modeled themselves largely after Paris. A large number of masters and their pupils left Paris, thus the English portion of Paris. University went to Oxford and Cambridge. The relation of the University of Paris, the mother of Cambridge and Oxford, to the papacy is thus expressed. It was because it was the center of theological learning that it received so many privileges from the Pope and was kept in close relation to the papal see. Luther and Melanchthon, the great 16th century reformers, understood clearly that it was mispossible to have a permanent religious reform without Christian education. So they not only gave attention to the doctrines of the papacy, but also developed a strong system of Christian, Christian schools. Melanchthon said, to neglect the young in our schools is just like taking the spring out of the year. They indeed take away the spring from the year, who permits the school to decline because religion cannot be maintained without them. Melanchthon steadily directed his efforts to the advancement of education in the building up of Christian schools. In the spring of 1520th, with Luther's help, he reorganized the schools of Elsenben and Medgeberg. He declared the cause of true education is the cause of God. In 1528, Melanchthon drew up the Saxony school plan, which served as the basis of organization for many schools throughout Germany. This plan dealt with the question of a multiplicity of studies that were not only unfruitful, but even hurtful. The teacher should not burden the children with too many books. These reformers realized that the strength, the strength of the papal church lay in its educational system, that they struck a crushing blow at the system and wounding it brought the papal church to her knees. The reformers established a system of Christian school that made, that made Protestants of the children. This wonderful revolution in education and religion was accomplished in one generation, in the brief space of one man's life. To give an idea of the power and that great Christian educational movement, the historian speaking of several European countries says, the nobility, nobility of that country studied in Wittenberg, all the colleges in the land were filled with Protestant. Not more than 30th part 
of the population remained Catholic. They withheld their children too from the Catholic schools. The inhabitants of many did not hesitate to send their children to Protestant schools. The Protestant nation extended their vivifying energies to the most remote of most forgotten corners of Europe. What an immense domain had they conquered within the space of 40 years. 20 years had elapsed in Venia since a single student of the university had taken priest orders. About this period, the teachers in Germany were all, almost without exception, Protestants. The whole body of the rising generation sat at their feet and imbibed a hatred of the Pope with the first rudiment of learning. After the death of Luther and Melanchthon, the theologian into whose hand the work of the Reformation fell, instead of multiplying Christian schools, became absorbed in the mere technicality of theology. And, and passed by the greatest work of the age. They soldiers their birthright, they sold their birthright for a mess of pottage. When the successors of Luther and Melanchthon failed to continue that constructive work, which centered largely in the education of the youth, who were to be the future missionaries and pillars of the church, internal dissensions arose. Their time was spent very largely in criticism, the view of some of their co-laborers who differed with them in some unimportant points of theology. Thus they became destructive instead of constructive. They paid much attention to doctrines and spent the most of their energy in preserving orthodoxy they crystallized their doctrine into a creed. They ceased to develop and lost the spirit of Christian education, which was the oil for their lamp. Protestantism degenerated into dead orthodoxy, and they broke up into opposing fraction. The Protestant church, thus weakened, could not resist the great power of rejuvenated papal education. The success of the reformers had been due to their control of the youth of the young people through their educational system. The papal schools were almost forsaken during the activity of Luther, Luther and Melanchthon. But when these reformers died and their successors became more interested, interested in abstract theology, than in Christian education and spend their time, energy and the money of the church in preaching and writing on abstract theology. The papal school system recovering itself rose to a life and death struggle with Protestant church. 
the papacy realized that the existence of the papal church itself depended upon a victory over Protestant schools. We are surprised at the skills and tact the papal educators use in their attack and the rapidity with which they gained the victory. This experience should be an object lesson for forever to Seventh-day Adventists and to the world. A Christian school animated by the papal spirit, the eyes of the successors of Luther and Melanchthon were blinded. They did not understand the true science of education. They did not see its importance and grasp the dependence of character upon education. The true object of education is to restore the image of God in the soul. Satan took advantage of this blindness to cause some of their own educators, like wolves in sheep's clothing, to prey onto, on the lambs. Chief among these was John Stern, who by these blind reformers was supposed to be a good Protestant. Stern introduced practically the entire papal system of education into the Protestant schools of Strasbourg. And because he pretended to be a Protestant, the successors of Luther looked with favor upon his whole education scheme. He was regarded by the so-called reformers as the greatest education of, of his time. And his school became so popular among Protestants that it was taken as their model for the Protestant schools of Germany. And its influence extended to England, England and thence to America. No one who is acquainted with the education given at our principal classical school, Ethan, Winchester, and Westminster, 40 years ago can fail to see that their curriculum was formed in a great degree on Sturm's model. The historian says that it was Sturm's ambition to reproduce Greece and Rome in the midst of modern Christian civilization. This educational wolf dressed in Christians in Christians fleece made great inroads on the lambs of the flock and made possible of papal victory. Most dangerous of all enemy in the church is a school of its own. Christian in profession with teachers and managers who are only half converted, who are accustomed to popular methods, who concede some things and make half reform, preferring to work according to their own ideas, who step by step advance toward worldly education, leading the innocent lambs with them. In the day of judgment, it will be easier for that, for that man who has been called 
and an avowed enemy to a reform movement, that for that one who professed to be a shepherd, but who has been a wolf in sheep's clothing, who deserves the lamb, who deceives, who deceives the lambs until they are unable to save themselves. It is the devil's master stroke to overthrow of God's work in the world. And there is no influence harder to counteract. No other form of evil is so strongly denounced. I know why works that thou art neither cold or hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, said the Lord. Sturm School stood as halfway marked between the Christian schools of Luther and Melanchthon and the papal schools round about him. It offered a mixture of medieval classical literature with a thin slice of scripture, sandwiched in for effect and flavored with the doctrine of the church. Its course of study was impractical, its method of instruction mechanical, memory work was exalted, its government was arbitrary and empirical, a dead knowledge of words took the place of a living knowledge of things. The students were obliged to learn, but they were not educated to see and hear, to think and prove, and were not led to a true independence and personal perfection. Teachers found their function in teaching the prescribed texts, not in harmoniously developing the youth the young human being according to the laws of nature. Macaulay speaking of this system of education adds, they promised what was impracticable, they despised, they despised what was practicable. They filled the world with long words and long beards and they left it as ignorant and as wicked as they found it. Jesuit schools, this study should make it clear that the Protestant teachers weakened and unfitted the Protestant denomination for the attack made by the papacy through the counter system of education introduced by Loyola, founder of the Order of Jesuit. Before this Catholic Church realized its helplessness to withstand the great movement of Protestantism, inaugurated by thousands of missionaries trained in the Christian schools of Luther and Melanchthon. Nothing the return of the Protestant church to dead orthodoxy under the inefficient leadership of Luther's successors. The papacy recognized the vulnerable point in Protestantism. The order of Jesuits found its special mission in combating the Reformation as the most effective means of arresting the progress of Protestantism 
It aim at controlling education. It develop an immense educational activity in Protestant countries and earn for its schools a great reputation. More than any other agency, it stayed the progress of the Reformation, of the Reformation, and it even succeeded in winning back territory already conquered by Protestantism. It worked chiefly through its schools, of which it established and controlled large number. Every member of the order became a competent and practical teacher. The following methods of teaching are characteristic of Jesuit schools. The memory was the memory was cultivated as a means of keeping down free activities of thought and clearness of judgment. In the place of self government, their method of discipline was a system of mutual distrust, espionage, and informing. Implicit obedience re relieved the student from all responsibilities as the moral justification of their deeds. The Jesuits made much of emulation. He who knows how to excite emulation was found the most powerful auxiliary in his teaching. Nothing will be more honorable than to outstrip a fellow student and nothing more dishonorable than to be outstripped. Prizes will be distributed to the best student with greatest solemnity. It sought shall result with which to dazzle the world. A well-rounded development was nothing. The Jesuits did not aim at developing all the faculties of their students, but merely the receptive and reproductive faculties. When a student could make a brilliant display from the resources of a well-stored memory, he had reached the highest point to which the Jesuit sought to lead him. Originality and independence of mind Love of truth for its own sake, the power of reflecting and forming correct judgment were not merely neglected. They were suppressed in the Jesuit system. The Jesuit system of education was remarkably successful. And for a century, nearly all foremost men of Christendom came from Jesuit school. Success of Jesuit schools. Concerning the success of the Jesuit educational system in overcoming the careless and indifferent Protestants, we read they carried their point. They shadowed the Protestant schools and like a parasites suck from them their life. Their labor were above all devoted to the universities. Protestants called back their children from distant schools and put them under the care of the Jesuits. 
the Jesuits occupy the professor's chairs. They conquered the German of their own soil. On their own soil. And their very home. And rested from them a part of their native land. This conquest rapidly went through nearly all the European countries. They conquered England by talking English youth. to Rome and educating them in Jesuit schools and sending them back as missionaries and teachers to their native land. And thus, they were established in the schools of England. The Jesuit overran the New World also, becoming thoroughly established and have been employing their characteristic methods here ever since. Here, as elsewhere, their only purpose is to obtain the sole direction of education so that by getting the young into their hands, they can fashion them after their own pattern. We stay here at the page 17. This is how the book studies in Christian education describe the overthrow of Protestantism throughout the old world as in the new world, meaning the United States of America. Ladies and gentlemen, this morning we are very glad you're here with us. We are going to share with you some important information from the book called Studies in Christian Education, written by the author E.A. Sutherland. Um, the title of this uh, chapter is uh, Beginning of the Educational History in the United States of America. It starts like this, that church triumph, which breaks the yoke of worldly education and which develops and practices the principle of Christian education. Now has never before, we need to understand the true science of education. If we fail to understand this, we shall never have a place in the kingdom of God. The science of true education is the truth. The third angel's message is truth. It is taken for granted that all Seventh-day Adventists believe that Christian education and the child and the third angel's message are the same truth. The two are as inseparable as are a tree's root and its trunk and branches. The object of these studies is to give a better understanding of the reason for the decline and moral fall 
of the Protestant denomination at the time of the Midnight Cry in 1844. And to help us as Seventh-day Adventists to avoid their mistakes, has reapproached the loud cry soon due to the world. A brief survey of the history of the Protestant denominations shows that their spiritual downfall in 1844 was the result of their failure to understand the true science of education. Their failure to understand and to practice Christian education unfitted them to proclaim to the world the message of Christ's second coming. The Seventh-day Adventist denomination was then called into existence to take up the work which the popular churches had failed to train their missionaries to do. The Protestant denominations could not give the third angel's message, a reform movement, which is a warning against the beast in his image, because they were still clinging to those doctrines and those principles of education which themselves form the beast and his image. It is important that young Seventh-day Adventists study seriously the causes of the spiritual decline of these churches in 1844. Lest we repeat their history and be cast aside the Spirit of God and thus lose our place in the kingdom. If Seventh-day Adventists succeed where they fail, we must have a system of education rich which repudiates those principles which in themselves develop the beast and his image. Now, all, the, all these things happen unto them for ensembles, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Protestantism born in the 16th century was about to lose its like its light in Europe. God then prepared a new land. The future United States has a cradle for the protection and development of those principles. And from this country is to go forth the final worldwide message that heralds the Savior's return. It was a desire for liberty of conscience that inspired the pilgrims to brave the perils of the long journey across the sea, to endure the hardship and dangers of the wilderness, and, with God's blessings, to lay on the shores of America the foundation of a mighty nation. The Bible was held as the foundation of faith and source of wisdom and the charter of liberty. Its principles were diligently taught in the home, in the school, and in the church, and its fruits were manifest in truth, intelligence, purity, and temperance. It was demonstrated that the principles of the Bible are the surest safeguards to national greatness. 
These reformers on reaching America renounce to papal doctrines in church and state, but they retain the papal system of education. While the reformers rejected the creed of Rome, they were not entirely free from her spirit of intolerance. The English reformers, while renouncing, renouncing the doctrine of Romanism, had retained many of its form. Some looked upon as badges of the slavery from which they had been delivered into which they had no disposition to return. Many earnestly desired to return to the purity and simplicity which characterized the primitive church. England had ceased forever to be a habitable spot. Some at last determined to seek refuge in Holland. Difficulties, loses, and imprisonment were encountered. In their flight, they had left their houses, their goods, their means of livelihoods. They cheerfully accepted the situation and lost no time in idleness of ripening. They knew they were pilgrims. In the midst of exile and hardship, their love and faith wax strong. They trusted the Lord's promises, and it did not fail them in the time of need. And when God's hand seemed pointing them across the sea to a land where they might found for themselves a state and leave to their children the precious heritage of religious liberty, they went forward without shrinking in the path of providence. The Puritans had joined themselves together by a solemn covenant as the Lord's free people to walk in all his ways, made known or to be made known to them. He was the true spirit of reform the vital principle of Protestantism. The educational system in, of the church, which had driven them from their native home, was one of the most serious errors from which the Puritan failed to break away. The system of education with papal in spirit was to a certain extent Protestant in, reform, in form. The historian writes of the school of the Puritan in the New World that their courses were fitted to the time section curriculum of the college. They taught much Latin and Greek, an extended course in mathematics, and were strong generally on the side of the humanities. This was a modeling after Rugby, Ethan, and other noted English schools. Again, we read, the roots of this system were deep in the great ecclesiastical system. From his early training, Dunster, one of the first president of Harvard, patterned the Harvard 
university course largely after that of the English universities. They so faithfully pattern after the English model Cambridge University that they were called by that name and that historian wrote of Harvard in several instances, youth in the parents' country were sent to the American Cambridge for a finishing education. Boone, speaking of the courses of study of William and Mary Pryor to the Revolution, says, all were of English pattern, of Yale. We all know that those colleges are Jesuits' colleges. Of Yale started later, it is said, the regulation for the most part were those at Harvard, as also the course of study, the younger pattern after the older. It is very natural that Yale should be established after the English papal system because the founder, Elihu Yale, had spent 20 years in the English schools. 20 years he spent in the schools and in special study. Seventh-day Adventists should not let this fact escape their attention. The three leading schools of the colony were established by men who had fled from the papal doctrines of the old world. But these educators, because of their training in these papal schools and their ignorance of the relation between education and religion, unwittingly patterned their institutions after the educational system of the church from which they had redrawn. It is surprising that these English reformers, after sacrificing as they did for a worthy cause, should yet allow a system of education so unfitted to all their purposes to be in reality the nurse of their children, from whose bosom these children drew their nourishment. They did not realize that the character and Christian experience of these children depended upon the nature of the food received. Had they grasped the relation of the education of the child to the experience of the same individual in the church, they would not have borrowed this papal system of education, but would have cast it out bodily as too dangerous for tolerance within the limits of Protestantism. Some facts from educational history will make clear the statement that the system of education in Oxford, Cambridge, Eton, and Rugby was papal. And the New England, England reformers patterning their schools after these models were planting the papal system of education in America. Laurie says, Oxford and Cambridge modeled themselves largely after Paris. A large number of masters and their pupils left Paris. Thus, the English portion of Paris University went to Oxford and Cambridge. The relation of the University of Paris the mother of Cambridge and Oxford to the papacy is thus expressed.
It was because it was the center of theological learning that it received so many privileges from the Pope and was kept in close relation to the papal see. Luther and Melanchthon, the great 16th century reformers, understood clearly that it was mispossible to have a permanent religious reform without Christian education. So they not only gave attention to the doctrines of the papacy, but also developed a strong system of Christian, Christian schools. Melanchthon said, to neglect the young in our schools is just like taking the spring out of the year. They indeed take away the spring from the year, who permits the school to decline because religion cannot be maintained without them. Melanchthon steadily directed his efforts to the advancement of education in the building up of Christian schools. In the spring of 1520th, with Luther's help, he reorganized the schools of Elsenben and Medgeberg. He declared the cause of true education is the cause of God. In 1528, Melanchthon drew up the Saxony school plan, which served as the basis of organization for many schools throughout Germany. This plan dealt with the question of a multiplicity of studies that were not only unfruitful, but even hurtful. The teacher should not burden the children with too many books. These reformers realized that the strength, the strength of the papal church lay in its educational system, that they struck a crushing blow at the system and wounding it brought the papal church to her knees. The reformers established a system of Christian school that made, that made Protestants of the children. This wonderful revolution in education and religion was accomplished in one generation, in the brief space of one man's life. To give an idea of the power and that great Christian educational movement, the historian speaking of several European countries says, the nobility, nobility of that country studied in Wittenberg, all the colleges in the land were filled with Protestant. Not more than 30th part of the population remained Catholic. They withheld their children too from the Catholic schools. The inhabitants of many did not hesitate to send their children to Protestant schools. The Protestant nation extended their vivifying energies to the most remote of most forgotten corners of Europe. What an immense domain had they conquered within the space of 40 years. Twenty years had elapsed in Venia since a single student of the university had taken priest orders. About this period, the teachers in Germany were all, almost without exception, Protestants. 
the whole body of the rising generation sat at their feet and imbibed a hatred of the Pope with the first rudiment of learning. After the death of Luther and Melanchthon, the theologian into whose hand the work of the Reformation fell, instead of multiplying Christian schools, became absorbed in the mere technicality of theology. And, and passed by the greatest work of the age. The soldiers, their birthright, they sold their birthright for a mess of pottage. When the successors of Luther and Melanchthon failed to continue that constructive work, which centered largely in the education of the youth, who were to be the future missionaries and pillars of the church, internal dissensions arose. Their time was spent lar very largely in criticism, the view of some of their co-laborers who differed with them in some unimportant points of theology. Thus they became destructive instead of constructive. They pay much attention to doctrines and spent the most of their energy in preserving orthodoxy. They crystallized their doctrine into a creed. They ceased to develop and lost the spirit of Christian education, which was the oil for their lamp. Protestantism degenerated into dead orthodoxy and they broke up into opposing fraction. The Protestant church, thus weakened, could not resist the great power of rejuvenated papal education. The success of the reformers had been due to their control of the youth, of the young people through their educational system. The papal schools were almost forsaken during the activity of Luther, Luther and Melanchthon. But when these reformers died and their successors became more interested, interested in abstract theology than in Christian education and spent their time, energy and the money of the church in preaching and writing on abstract theology, the papal school system recovering itself rose to a life and death struggle with Protestant church. The papacy realized that the existence of the papal church itself depend upon a victory over Protestant schools. We are surprised at the skills and tact the papal educators use in their attack and the rapidity with which they gain the victory. This experience should be an object lesson for forever to Seventh-day Adventists and to the world. A Christian school animated by the papal spirit, the eyes of the successors of Luther and Melanchthon were blinded. They did not understand the true science of education. They did not see its importance and grasp the dependence of character upon education. 
The true object of education is to restore the image of God in the soul. Satan took advantage of this blindness to cause some of their own educators, like wolves in sheep's clothing, to prey onto, on the lambs. Chief among these was John Stern, who by these blind reformers was supposed to be a good Protestant. Stern introduced practically the entire papal system of education into the Protestant schools of Strasbourg. And because he pretended to be a Protestant, the successors of Luther looked with favor upon his whole education scheme. He was regarded by the so-called reformers as the greatest education of, of his time. And his school became so popular among Protestants that it was taken as their model for the Protestant schools of Germany. And its influence extended to England, England and thence to America. No one who is acquainted with the education given at our principal classical school, Eton, Winchester, and Westminster, 40 years ago can fail to see that their curriculum was formed in a great degree on Sturm's model. The historian says that it was Sturm's ambition to reproduce Greece and Rome in the midst of modern Christian civilization. This educational wolf dressed in Christians in Christians fleece made great inroads on the lambs of the flock and made possible of papal victory. Most dangerous of all enemy in the church is a school of its own. Christian in profession with teachers and managers who are only half converted, who are accustomed to popular methods, who concede some things and make half reform, preferring to work according to their own ideas, who step by step advance toward worldly education, leading the innocent lambs with them. In the day of judgment, it will be easier for that, for that man who has been called and an avowed enemy to a reform movement than for that one who professed to be a shepherd but who has been a wolf in sheep's clothing, who deserve the lamb, who deceives, who deceives the lambs until they are unable to save themselves. It is the devil's master stroke to overthrow of God's work in the world. And there is no influence harder to counteract. No other form of evil is so strongly denounced I know why works that thou art neither cold or hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm, 
and neither cold or hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, said the Lord. Sturm School stood as halfway marked between the Christian schools of Luther and Melanchthon and the papal schools round about him. It offered a mixture of medieval classical literature with a thin slice of scripture, sandwiched in for effect and flavored with the doctrine of the church. Its course of study was impractical, its method of instruction mechanical, memory work was exalted, its government was arbitrary and empirical, a dead knowledge of words took the place of a living knowledge of things. The students were obliged to learn, but they were not educated to see and hear to think and prove, and were not led to a true independence and personal perfection. Teachers found their function in teaching the prescribed texts, not in harmoniously developing the youth, the young human being according to the laws of nature. Macaulay speaking of this system of education adds, they promised what was impracticable, they despised, they despised what was practicable. They filled the world with long words and long beards, and they left it as ignorant and as wicked as they found it. Jesuit schools, this study should make it clear that the Protestant teachers weakened and unfitted the Protestant denomination for the attack made by the papacy through the counter-system of education introduced by Loyola, founder of the Order of Jesuit. Before this Catholic Church realized its helplessness to withstand the great movement of Protestantism, inaugurated by thousands of missionaries' trains, in the Christian schools of Luther and Melanchthon. Nothing the return of the Protestant church to dead orthodoxy under the inefficient leadership of Luther's successors. The papacy recognized the vulnerable point in Protestantism. The order of Jesuits found its special mission in combating the Reformation as the most effective means of arresting the progress of Protestantism, it aimed at controlling education. It developed an immense educational activity in Protestant countries and earned for its schools a great reputation. More than any other agency, it stayed the progress of the Reformation of the Reformation, and it even succeed in winning back territory already conquered by Protestantism. It worked chiefly through its schools, of which it established and controlled large numbers. Every member of the order became a competent and practical teacher the following methods 
of teaching are characteristic of Jesuit schools. The memory was the memory was cultivated as a means of keeping down free activities of thought and clearness of judgment. In the place of self-government, their method of discipline was a system of mutual distrust, espionage, and informing. Implicit obedience relieved the student from all responsibilities as the moral justification of their deeds. The Jesuits made much of emulation. He who knows how to excite emulation was found the most powerful auxiliary in his teaching. Nothing will be more honorable than to outstrip a fellow student and nothing more dishonorable than to be outstriped. Prizes will be distributed to the best student with greater solemnity. It sought shall result with which to dazzle the world. A well-rounded development was nothing. The Jesuits did not aim at developing all the faculties of their students, but merely the receptive and reproductive faculties. When a student could make a brilliant display from the resources of a well-stored memory, he had reached the highest point to which the Jesuit sought to lead him. Originality and independence of mind, love of truth for its own sake, the power of reflecting and forming correct judgment were not merely neglected. They were suppressed in the Jesuit system. The Jesuit system of education was remarkably successful. And for a century, nearly all foremost men of Christendom came from Jesuit school. Success of Jesuit schools. Concerning the success of the Jesuit educational system, in overcoming the careless and indifferent Protestants, we read they carried their point. They shadowed the Protestant schools and, like a parasite, suck from them their life. Their labor were above all devoted to the universities. Protestants called back their children from distant schools and put them under the care of the Jesuits. The Jesuits occupied the professor's chairs. They conquered the German of their own soil. On their own soil. And their very home. And wrested from them a part of their native land. This Congress rapidly went through nearly all the European countries. They conquered England by talking English youth to Rome and educating them in Jesuit schools and sending them back as missionaries and teachers to their native land and thus they were established in the schools of England. 
the Jesuit overran the New World also, becoming thoroughly established and have been employing their characteristic methods here ever since. Here, as elsewhere, their only purpose is to obtain the sole direction of education so that by getting the young into their hands, they can fashion them after their own pattern. We stay here at the page 17. This is how the book Studies in Christian Education describe the overthrow of Protestantism throughout the old world as in the new world, meaning the United States of America.